0: As commented on previously, one of the most important data sets in the history of research in thyroid cancer was the Phase 3 decision trial comparing serafinib to placebo, which was an ASCO plenary paper this past June in Chicago. I met with Dr. Marcia Brose, who presented these findings to the ASCO multitudes, and she began by commenting on the background to this trial.
1: The decision study was based on prior Phase 2 data that suggested that if we use the drug serafinib, which is a VEGF receptor inhibitor and also inhibits a few other kinases including BREF and PDGFR and a couple of others. And the Phase 2 data had shown that we know that patients respond to this agent and also that they have a fairly good progression-free survival period. So based on my phase two work, as well as a few other studies, we went ahead and designed the phase three study to really answer the question, what is the efficacy and also what is the safety, of course, of this agent in these patients?
0: Before you get into the actual design and data, i just kind of curious in terms of what it was like to actually make this happen. I had the feeling that maybe there might have been some skepticism in the beginning that you could pull off a study like this.
1: There was skepticism, and in fact, that was very important to the design of the study because, of course, thyroid cancer has the reputation of being the curable cancer. It's a great cancer. It's the good one to have. And for most patients, 90% of the patients, that's true. But for anywhere between 5 and 15% of the patients, the standard therapies, which include surgery and radioactive iodine, eventually fail, and they stop working. And when that happens, those patients have had no therapies whatsoever. So first, we had to overcome the belief that everybody does well, and then second, even of the people who don't do well, there is somewhat of an indolent phase, and we did want to make sure that we were not going to be treating patients who had indolent disease who did not need therapy, nor would they deserve the side effects of any therapy. So we had to really look around and say, okay, who are the patients we need to be treating? What should the eligibility criteria be to safeguard that we're treating patients who need it and not patients who don't? And in order to do that, we had to do some consensus building around two issues. The first is that they are radioactive iodine refractory, meaning that radioactive iodine is done. There is no more benefit to getting radioactive iodine. And due to practice differences across the world, and this was a global trial, we included three different criteria for determining that. In some cases, patients either had no uptake when they had their last round of radioactive iodine, meaning that the disease wasn't taking it up so clearly that it was not an agent anymore. Some patients, though, did take up radioactive iodine in their disease, but they continued to progress anyway. Or they had nodules that took it up, but some that didn't, and the ones that didn't were progressing anyway. So in other words, they clearly had portions of their disease that were not amenable to radioactive iodine. And if that's the case, then there's no more point in giving radioactive iodine to treat a subset of the disease. And then the third is that some patients have had multiple doses of radioactive iodine, but in general, once they've hit 600 millicuries, they are at higher risk of getting leukemia, And we know that once they get into that range, they're also very, very unlikely to ever be cured by radioactive iodine. So for those two reasons, also people who had exceeded 600 millicuries lifetime dose were also allowed to be treated on this study. So that addresses the question of who is really done with radioactive iodine. Then the second question is, who has disease that's actually progressing. And in order to do that, we said to the sites, you have to identify patients who, if you look at their disease over the prior 14 months, did they have what we would consider resist criteria for progression? And that would mean that they either had a new lesion Or they had uh, growth of their, you know, some of their largest diameters by 20%. Because we felt that that was a pace that identified people whose disease was clearly progressing and was not going to be indolent throughout, you know, their treatment phase.
0: So I guess maybe one way to assess whether you were successful in that regard is to look at the placebo arm. How did they do?
1: That's exactly right. So the placebo arm actually had a progression-free survival of 5.8 months. So that was one of the first and most reassuring numbers, because that said, we did identify a group of patients who were clearly progressing. And the other thing to know about the patients when they progress is that many of them do have problems, such as bone lesions that now need to be radiated, or obstructive pneumonias, lymph nodes that need to be handled, and pain that needs to be treated. And because of that, those patients, we felt we had really found them by using the enrollment criteria that we had on the study.
0: Now, another feature to the study that I thought was interesting, and it really comes up all the time in oncology, is the issue of crossover. How did you approach that?
1: So the issue of crossover was, in a way, almost determined for us by the fact that serafinib was already readily available. The phase two data from my study and other studies were out. And we knew that going in, if we had a design that did not allow for crossover, people would immediately drop out and go get the drug off-label. And so the first priority was to be able to complete a study that would have integrity and that would actually be completed at all. And in order to really ensure that patient would stay on study, we said, well, okay, well, when they progress, we'll allow crossover. And that allowed patients to stay. They knew they were going to be monitored closely. And it turned out to work out very well, because even patients who were on placebo, they could relax knowing that we were watching them closely, and the first sign that they had really progressed, they did switch over. We didn't really have a choice with that, I would say, because it was available. And I think also the other side of it is that even if serafinib wasn't available, there are many other kinase inhibitors in that class that were available. So again, even without the serafinib being available, other agents were.
0: And what fraction of patients did cross over?
1: Over 70% of the patients who had placebo crossed over and received serafinib at that time.
0: And can you talk a little bit about what was seen in the numbers?
1: So the progression-free survival in the patients on the treatment arm was 10.8 months, and that was compared to 5.8 months. So there was a prolongation of the progression-free survival by 5 months for the patients who were on study. And that was clearly statistically significant. The p-value was less than point. I think it was 0.001. And it has a ratio of, I want to say, around 0.587. So it was clearly a positive study. So that's the first and most important. That was really the crux of the data that was presented. When we actually looked at the number of people who crossed over, 70%, as I said, in the placebo arm crossed over. But there was also a large number of patients who, on the treatment arm, After they progressed, maybe they had a solitary lesion that was treated, and some of those patients actually also were allowed to stay on because they were receiving clinical benefit. So the overall survival numbers at the end look like the curves are still quite close together, but we don't even have enough events yet to even evaluate the overall survival at this time.
0: So what's your clinical take for the doc in practice?
1: Well, I think that the great news, and hopefully the FDA will concur, and this will go through the FDA positively, is that we may have finally an FDA-approved agent that will be able to be treating patients with this disease. Until now, they haven't had anything that was FDA-approved. The only thing that was FDA-approved before this was doxorubicin. And everybody in the field, especially the experts, say that you should not give doxorubicin because it's toxic. And using our endpoints that we would have these days, we're not even sure it would be FDA approved if it had even been up for approval. So doxorubicin fell out of favor over 10 years ago. So really, the bottom line of this is that we now have the first agent that's shown activity in a phase three study, and it probably will be the first-line therapy for these patients.
0: Can you talk about the response rate that was seen? And also, I thought the waterfall plots are fascinating.
1: Right, the response rate was 12.2% in the seraphinib arm and 0.5% or less than 1%, obviously, in the placebo arm. So clearly we're seeing responses. And in the patients who are symptomatic, that response is often enough to relieve whatever symptoms they have, whether it's difficulty swallowing or whether it's shortness of breath. So even 12% can often relieve symptoms. And obviously, compared to the placebo arm, it's significant. But then in thyroid cancer, unlike other cancers, stable disease is really considered an important endpoint because stopping it from growing obviously prevents complications of the disease. And if you add together the what we call clinical benefit rate, both people who have partial responses as well as people who've had stable disease for over six months, the clinical benefit rate was 57% compared to about 33% in a placebo arm. And that really basically says that a large number of people, again, statistically significant, are getting what we think is a clinical benefit from this drug.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the waterfall plot?
1: Well, the waterfall plot basically shows what the responses are by each patient. And the waterfall plot really, the one that we showed actually in the ASCO presentation was not based on the central review, but was based on the best response by the local review. And what you really see is over 75% of the patients clearly had a shrinkage of their tumor, even though a small number may have only shrunk more than the 30% required for a partial response. 75% were clearly getting some response. It was a much smaller amount of people who had what seemed like a response on the placebo arm. But, of course, many of those were just brief until the next scan or so when they started showing progression.
0: So can you talk a little bit about, you said that, you know, in terms of hopefully an FDA approval, then this will become first-line therapy. But an alternative to this would be watch and wait, observation. Can you talk a little bit about how you would approach or do approach the question of whether to even start therapy?
1: Well, I think that the best thing about this study is the fact that the eligibility criteria really identify the people who do need to start therapy. So the watch and wait really comes before that. So I think that for the general oncologists who might be treating these patients, the two most important things they need to learn is one, they need to make sure they can review the iodine treatment history and make sure that that has actually been exhausted, that that patient has exceeded the criteria that we had in our study. And the second is that they are actually progressing. So sometimes that means when a patient comes to see me, probably the vast majority of them don't get started on therapy immediately. They have a second scan in another three months, and we compare them to their old scan to get a sense of what the dynamics are. The other thing that's maybe changing the treatment a little bit, but for the endocrinologists as well as for the oncologists, is that they need to actually know that following the radioactive iodine scan, they should have often a diagnostic CAT scan right away. Because the iodine scan will only be positive in lesions that take up iodine. But if there are lesions there that are not taking up iodine, you wouldn't know it. So more and more, we're recommending that Because we like to have iodine contrast in the CT scans, and that would get in the way of the RAI, that you do the RAI scan first, and then follow it right up with an iodine contrast diagnostic CT, because that way really you get the most information about what is the burden of disease for these patients, and really what is the RAI uptake and status of those patients.
0: Getting back to this issue of whether or when to start therapy, in the discussion of your paper by Dr. Ezra Cohn, he put up a kind of an interesting graphic in terms of his approach looking at the symptomatology or lack of symptomatology, the location of the tumor, and then the growth rate of the tumor. What were your thoughts about that sort of approach?
1: You know, it's funny. We've had several discussions since ASCO, Ezra and I. And it's interesting because I think some people misinterpreted what he said as saying that patients should only be symptomatic at the time that they start therapy. But it turns out that's not really what he meant to say or that's not the message he meant to say. I think what we really would like to do is identify the patients before They have symptoms. And what he was pointing at is sometimes we can get a sense, one, by the rate of growth, which is what we've already discussed, because the resist criteria and the eligibility criteria of decision did that.
0: What about thyroglobulin levels?
1: So, thyroglobulin levels are very important, and in endocrinology, they're mostly important because they identify the patients who might still be cured by radioactive iodine. So, people, after surgery, their thyroglobulin levels go way down. If they start going up, sometimes they can actually identify people who might be cured. By the time they get to the point where they have measurable disease... And they're not amenable to RAI. The thyroid globulin levels, I would say, in our area, and once it becomes into that period of the disease, I guess, becomes a little less important because you're going to base all of your clinical decisions on the actual growth of the lesions as seen on CAT scan. So you no longer have to do it based on biomarkers. Biomarkers are really for the period when you can't measure the disease. But once we're talking about treating patients, everybody's going to have measurable disease.
0: So what's going to be going on over the next few years in terms of sort of following this research up, other TKIs or anti-angiogenics that might be looked at, and other strategies that might include TKIs, including serafinib?
1: So there are two other VEGF receptor inhibitors that are in phase three right now. So lenvatinib is one that I think we're expecting the results in about a year, and then vendetinib, which actually had a randomized phase two with good results, is also looking at there's actually just starting now a phase three study. So we have two other phase threes in the area of VEGF receptor inhibitors. What we're doing at Penn, and I think that a lot of the excitement is, is what do you do next? What are the other targets? How else can you manage this? And we have a couple of trials that have done two things. The first one, which is actually finished accruing, and we hope to be able to present the data soon, is a phase two data studying the papillary thyroid cancers that have the BRAF V600E mutation. Now, that's present in approximately 50% of papillary thyroid cancer patients, so a large number of the differentiated thyroid cancer patients have this mutation. Vemurafenib is the same drug used in melanoma for the BRAF mutations there. So that's a new target altogether, and we have data that will be coming out soon that may show some activity. So one thing going forward after the VEGF receptor inhibitors is to look at other targets, and the BRAF V600E mutated papillary thyroid cancer patients is a subgroup that we can directly target.
0: I want to ask you in a minute about cabozantinib in thyroid cancer, particularly medullary thyroid cancer, but what other agents look exciting? I wanted to know about, is it selumetinib?
1: So there are a couple more that are interesting. So the solumetinib study was a pilot that was actually reported at ASCO just over a year ago. So it was not this ASCO, but a year before that. And it was a pilot study where they took 20 patients who had stopped responding to radioactive iodine. And they gave solumetinib because Jim Fagan's group at Sloan Kettering had determined that the solumetinib MEC inhibition was the best actually reinducing iodine uptake in thyroid cancer cells, and they studied several kinase inhibitors and picked solumetinib and the MEC inhibition as being the one that they thought most likely to help. So they treated patients for about four to five weeks with solumetinib, then re-scanned them to see what their iodine uptake was, and out of the 20 patients, I believe 12 of them had increased uptake. And so of those 12, eight of them had enough of an increase in the uptake to make it clinically significant, and they felt would be worth getting another dose. They treated eight of them, and I think five of them had responses. Now, there's some caveats. We really don't know how this will work out, and there are phase two trials that are going to go ahead in understanding radioactive iodine-resistant disease. But then there are other studies that are saying, well, if that's true latent disease, could we take solumetinib and put it up front? And so there's also a large phase three going forward where they take high-risk patients, patients who are likely to recur, either who have T3 or T4 disease, lots of lymph nodes in the neck at the time of their original surgery. And when they get their first round of radioactive iodine, they give solumentinib before that to see if maybe that helps there be fewer patients who have recurrence.
0: What's the thinking about why it would sort of make it more likely to be taken up by radioactive iodine?
1: Well, when you actually do the MAP kinase inhibition, we know that when the MAP kinase pathway is upregulated, that there is a decrease in the iodine uptake. And so the reverse is true. If you stop the overactive MAP kinase activity, then what happens is the iodine uptake comes back. And that's what's been seen in cell culture cells. So that's the argument behind that.
0: And what about single agent activity?
1: So there was a phase two, it was done by Ezra Cohen out in Chicago. The phase two was negative. So as a single agent, it doesn't really work by itself because its activity, what we're talking about is its iodine uptake activity. But as a single agent, as a kinase inhibitor to induce, you know, stable disease or even responses, I believe the primary endpoint for that study was responses, there just weren't any. So as a single agent, it probably is not the mechanism of action that's going to work. And then there's just another area that's been exciting for us is that we've been actually looking at patients who, after they progressed on serafinib, what happens when we actually add in an mTOR inhibitor? Because what we noticed early on, and this was actually early on in the phase two days, is that patients often may have response in 100 lung nodes, but they have growth when they start to progress. They have growth maybe just in a neck lymph node or just in a liver nodule, but the lung nodules stayed stable. And so when we actually did a biopsy and looked at these in the lab, we saw that the mTOR pathway, the PI3 kinase mTOR pathway leading down to S6 kinase, this whole mTOR pathway was also upregulated in the nodules that were growing. So instead of stopping the seraphnib that seemed to still have control over most of the lung disease, we left that on board and added in an mTOR inhibitor. And in this study, it's actually everolimus. And so that study now is 26 out of 35 patients enrolled, and it's actually showing two very fascinating things. One, that when we add in Everolimus late, the patients can tolerate almost full dose or full dose of both, which has just never been seen. People felt that they're too toxic to give together. But for some reason, by delaying the start of the Everolimus, patients tolerate it very, very well. And the second thing we've noticed is that we've had stabilization of disease. I had a couple of patients who actually had been on serafinib, stable for a year, started to progress, got Everolimus, and now have been stable for another two years. So doing this combinatorial kind of approach has really helped in some cases.
0: So I see that your cabozantinib medullary cancer paper just got published in the JCO. Can you talk about this agent?
1: This is the second drug to be FDA approved now for medullary thyroid cancer. The one that was approved first was Vendetinib a year earlier. And the really exciting thing, I think, that the difference between the two agents is I think that they are actually different agents. You know, one of them is primarily VEGF receptor 2 and RET, but then the interesting thing about the cabozantinib agent is it also inhibits MET. And I think that they have slightly different toxicity profiles, and I think that the great news for medullary thyroid cancer patients, just like differentiated thyroid cancer patients, many of them at the time they progress may still be asymptomatic. And they're certainly healthy enough to get a second line agent. And so for medullary thyroid cancer patients now, they really do have two agents. Which ones they get first may depend a little bit on, you know, which toxicity the doctor feels they would manage better. For instance, the vendetinib has more cardiac toxicities and issues with arrhythmias, whereas cabozantinib, there is some concern about fistula formation. What's interesting about that study and why I'm very, very excited to be a part of that paper is that... The point that I pointed out for decision was also known to the investigators of the Copaxantinib study. And what happened with Vendetinib study is when they did that study, they didn't require progressive disease. And so the placebo arm on that study was 16.9 months progression-free survival on the placebo arm, which then was, you know, clearly statistically significant that, you know, no question been improved on that. But what that said is that we need to identify who are the patients who need treatment because a placebo arm of 16.9 months to get 20% growth would say to me that a lot of those patients probably did not need to be treated. And so what they did with the cabozantinib study is they said, we're going to take both the baseline scan and compare it centrally to a prior scan and confirm that these patients clearly had resist criteria progression. And you can see it in the placebo arm of that study. So in the placebo arm of that study, patients progressed in four months. So again, the eligibility criteria clearly identify patients that were progressing and were definitely in need of therapy. And then it was a beautiful curve i mean the progression free survival was up over 11 months so a difference of 11 months compared to 4 months in the placebo so it was not surprising that this was fda approved and now it's really it's a good news that we have for progressing medullary thyroid cancers now two agents
0: can you talk about how you decide specifically about sequencing them and what you see in terms of tolerability
1: Well, I think that sequencing them is a little bit, you know, it's probably more of a doctor preference sometimes than actually a patient preference. I mean, the first thing I always remember, no matter what, is that most of my patients will get both. And so then I'm really picking toxicities, which do I want them to have up front. Vendetinib has a really bad photosensitivity. It also has this issue with arrhythmia. So patients who've had trouble with that or have high sun exposure are going to be out a lot. I don't recommend vendetinib. I don't think that's a good drug for them to start with. They will often get it. But then I might start with cabozantinib. Because of the data in the taking really aggressive patients, which I think Cabo trial really focused on, if I have a patient who really has aggressive disease, I'll often pick the cabozantinib first. Because that trial really you know, identified those patients, and I know what the data is much more clearly Not to say vendetinib isn't active in that area, but you can't see in the data how the patients with more aggressive disease did. So while I know that there's activity there, that's my second choice in patients with aggressive disease. I do have, however, a patient who's had a couple of pneumothoraxes due to her disease in her lungs. I worry a little bit of the danger of fistula formation in those patients, because if she has disease, it's really a lot on the lining, and she's already popped a couple of her, you know, gotten little either pneumothoraxes or blebs, basically, in her lung because of little mini fistulas forming. I worry a little bit about that side effect in cabozantinib, and I might pick an agent that might be vendetinib first before I do the combozantinib. So it really is each one has sort of different types of problems. Side effect wise, I think that you know they're both fairly well tolerated. Both of them have required large amounts of dose reduction. So the starting dose on the vendetinib trial was 300 milligrams a day, and most patients went down to 100. The same thing is true in the combozantinib arm, that the starting dose on the trial was 175, and many patients ended up at 75. That was before they changed the dosing. Now it's you know between 140 and down to 60. They changed the way they talked about the dosing. So just to be clear, the 175 dose and the 140 dose is what we call it now. But the bottom line is both of them often need dose reductions related to toxicity.
0: And what's seen in what terms of responses
1: Responses, I think, have been, you know, observed in both. And again, similar to the decision trial, many patients have partial responses. I have to say I don't know offhand exactly what the partial response rate was in the Cabo study, but I think it was in the 20% range, but it may have been a little less. I can't remember. But patients do very well on that study.
0: There have been some really interesting things seen in bone mets with cabozantinib and prostate cancer. I think it's been seen in renal cell. How often do you see bone mets in medullary and do you see this phenomenon of bone scan normalization?
1: So, you know, we haven't really looked at bone scan normalization because that was really an endpoint in the prostate study, and that wasn't an endpoint in the medullary study. But I will tell you that bone disease responds beautifully. And the other area that I've been very excited with Cabo, so the Cabozantinib, of all of the multikinase inhibitors we've discussed today, it really does have good bone activity. And I want to clarify that to one point, which is that Patients with bone mets still respond to serafinib and respond to the multi-kinase inhibitors, pazopinib, exitinib, other ones. But what happens is, is that they respond for a period, but if they progress, it's often the bone disease that comes back first. And the bone disease, while it may respond, may not respond a lot. However, with cabozantinib, the bone responses are really spectacular. And when the bone does respond, it's very good. I will say that medullary thyroid cancer patients that have a lot of bone disease tend to have a more aggressive disease to start with. And so I think that you're going to have to play off how well they do because their probably overall prognosis is worse. But I do think that the cabozantinib works very well. But you bring up an interesting point, and I'll just harken back a little bit to the differentiated. It is an agent that we are looking at in differentiated thyroid cancer. And we did do phase one study, and we're working on getting that data published. It was presented in abstract form at ASCO a couple years ago. But we had 15 patients with cabozantinib, heavily pretreated patients, and 50% of them had partial responses. So cabozantinib is also a very good agent in differentiated thyroid cancer because of the VEGF receptor inhibitor, maybe because of the red activity, and maybe because of the med activity. And also in patients with bone disease, I've had spectacular results with patients with differentiated thyroid cancer and bone disease. So I think cabozantinib and bone disease is definitely a combination you want to keep in mind, regardless of whether it's medullary or if it's differentiated.
0: In terms of these patients, again, either medullary or differentiated, have you yourself actually observed patients who had normalized bone scans?
1: No, because we don't follow bone scans routinely the same way they do in prostate cancer. So historically, the endocrinologists followed them, but because PET scans show both disease in the bone as well as in the viscera, we don't really tend to follow them as much. But let's put it this way. I had a patient who was getting cabazantinib for her poorly differentiated differentiated thyroid cancer very heavily pretreated, was no longer able to walk well because she had so much burden of bone disease in her sacrum that she was walking with a cane, could barely get up, and after only two months of treatment is walking without a cane totally normally. Another patient who was on 60 milligrams of morphine every single day and a lesion that was five centimeters that was growing out of her sacrum Over a period of a year, oncobozantinib responded so well that within a month, actually, she was off of all of her morphine. And by a year into it, I could barely even see the 6-centimeter lesion. It was down to this teeny, teeny thin ribbon that could barely even measure. So spectacular results in the bone.
0: Any hypotheses about why it's so active in the bone?
1: You know, I'm not really sure why, except that maybe the activity is so good at targeting the tumor cells that the bone environment, which seems to be permissive of growth in these tumors, doesn't, you know, it's not enough. So if you're really, really good at targeting the tumor cells, then it won't really matter where the tumor cells are. But if your mechanism of action is primarily antivascular, you can imagine that in the bone that's not particularly reliant on neovasculature for feeding the tumors because they're bathed in the nutrients and oxygen that they need, you can imagine that bone would be an area that makes sense that it might not need blood vessels quite the same extent and might be resistant to an antivascular mechanism.
0: So let's close out talking a little bit about your patients that you brought in here today. Why don't we start out with a 65-year-old lady who I guess is an example of what you were talking about before in terms of seraphinol or but what happened with her?
1: Well, so she was a patient who had papillary thyroid cancer, and she actually was first diagnosed in 1999. And so she's had the disease now for 15 years. And she had had, I believe, two rounds of radioactive iodine. The first she got a long response and was actually good until 2009. And then when she recurred the second time, she got another round of radioactive iodine. However, at that time, she had some uptake in her neck and her lymph nodes in her neck, but the PET CT showed us that there were other lesions elsewhere in the lung, and the lung had not taken up any radioactive iodine. So she was clearly at a point where her disease was growing, not taking up radioactive iodine, and she absolutely needed another therapy. So that patient, we also did some surveillance as you and I discussed. And it was 18 months before she really started to progress. So had an indolent, slow-growth period, but then started to pick up. And at that point, we started her on serafinib. And she did very, very well.
0: What happened in terms of her disease and also in terms of side effects?
1: Well, so her disease was well-controlled over a year, and she did very, very well. Her side effects were pretty much standard what we see. Many patients have hand-foot skin reaction and they may have fatigue. And those two are probably two of the most prominent side effects. But the good news with serafinib is many times it's self-limited. It's mostly in the first four months, and then it gets better. And that was absolutely the case here. And by six months, hands and feet were doing better. Fatigue was clearing up. And she went on for another 18 months total on serafinib before she had her progression. And then at that point, when she had her progression, she was progressing in the neck and the liver, and that's the patient I told you about, who then was started on ever- Everlimus. And Everolimus, interestingly, many of these patients have already had the first response to serafinib, maybe of 20%, When they go on the Everolimus, they may not have that big response again. But what they do do is they tend to respond continuously over a long period. And I think at about 15 months, she did actually get another partial response, but it was at 15 months. It wasn't in the first couple of months of starting the Everolimus. But every single scan, every three months, showed that her disease was getting a little smaller every time. And she continues to be on that drug today.
0: And how has she done in terms of the Everolimus, any mucositis?
1: There's no mucositis with the Everolimus when we add it in later. Isn't that curious? We've had no mucositis whatsoever with Everolimus. The biggest concern of combining the two was that the hand-foot syndrome would be so bad. And in fact, when you do start the two up front, most of the patients have to reduce to 25% dosing of both agents because the hand-foot syndrome is so severe. Our patients, remember I've said, often get over the Hamfoot syndrome in the first six months. When they start the Everolimus, they don't have any trouble with Hamfoot syndrome. What we've noticed is an increased incidence of some GI bleeding. Most of the time it was non-symptomatic, could be basically managed conservatively. It was never like a big GI bleed, and no one was ever stopped on the study because of GI bleeding. They had an increased GI bleeding and an increased diarrhea. And that actually is controlled well with Imodium. So it, interestingly, was very well controlled for this patient. What
0: about pneumonitis? Have you seen that?
1: None. Absolutely none.
0: Interesting.
1: 26 patients. I haven't seen one pneumonitis.
0: When you use serafinib in general with thyroid cancer, do you do anything preemptively? In terms of hand-foot syndrome, I think in epitoma, I saw there was a presentation a couple years ago of some urea-based cream. Do you do anything like that?
1: Yeah. I mean, we don't tend to. I'm aware of the urea-based cream, and sometimes the patients get their hands on it, and I say, fine, go ahead and do that. What we recommend is patients keep their skin well hydrated. And then a couple of other things we do, if patients are in that you know surveillance period before they go on sorafenib, I try to get them into a routine of going to a gym and doing weightlifting. And the reason for that is that they really do lose muscle mass when they're on these VEGF receptor inhibitors. I imagine that the blood flow decrease to the muscles leads to atrophy. But that leads to all sorts of other things. They seem to get exhausted. They don't eat well. They get fatigued. They have more trouble. And if they maintain their muscle mass, they seem to do better overall. Psychologically, they seem to be much more balanced and able to manage. So we try to get them into that. And then their weight loss is not as significant as well. So that's two of my biggest tricks.
0: What's the distribution of the muscle mass loss? It's throughout. So it's not more it, proximal or it's not really a myopathy? No,
1: but you notice it more in the proximal muscles. Certainly you notice them the most in the legs, you know, the quads, because those are the biggest muscles. But really, I just watch them. You know, I really am talking to patients. I'm always aware of what their arms look like, and I do see a big difference.
0: So how about your 72-year-old man?
1: Yeah, so he was interesting. So he had a subtype of follicular cancer called Herthel cell. And this is an interesting subtype because Hurthle cells tend to not be radioactive iodine, avid from the get-go. Only 10% of Herthl cells will take up iodine from the beginning. So while there are more rare cancer in the endocrinologist or the thyroid cancer endocrinologist practice, in my practice, they represent a larger proportion of patients. And the Hurthle cells, basically, this was a patient who, like other patients, did not take up iodine but was growing. And so pretty soon after 2009, he was referred to us for additional therapy. And he had multiple pulmonary nodules, and then he also had a nodule sort of right behind the sternum. And when he started on serafinib, he had a beautiful response of over 50% of all of his disease. And interestingly, at 12 months, all of his lung nodules were still very, very small. Many of them had been over a centimeter. Now they were less than 5 millimeters. However, that one retrosternal lymph node continued to grow. And because he was clearly getting response everywhere else, we actually had our CT surgeon go in and take out that one nodule, and he continued to respond for another two years afterwards and is still on therapy now with the serafinib doing a great job controlling his disease. So that brings up that point I've said before, which is, you know, technically on a study, that patient would have been a progressor and be off the study. But in clinic, the management can sometimes include removal of a solitary problematic spot because the vast majority of their disease is well controlled
0: you know it's interesting i've heard that kind of strategy and at different times you know i was talking to dr george dimitri about that kind of strategy in gist i remember talking to ross Camage about that same kind of strategy of sort of cherry picking things and alk positive lung cancer what are some of the local modalities that you've ended up using
1: so surgery, obviously, is number one. Radiation is a great one as well. So many times, if it's not amenable to surgery, radiation can be probably given to 90% of the sites, whether it's a bone lesion, even a hilar lymph node, or a solitary lung nodule can sometimes be treated with radiation. So for the most part, it's those two modalities.
0: I see in your write-up that this man, I guess you suggested, as you were talking about before, exercise for him. What happened there? And it looks like he was losing weight. What was going on there?
1: Yeah, so he's an interesting guy because he was having side effects, problems with diarrhea, fatigue, was worn down, was really not happy. And at 12 months, he was so thin that, honestly, when he turned sideways, I couldn't see him. And I finally said to him, you know, he came in and he was miserable and he had done everything I had told him to do. He had taken the Imodium. He had taken Megase for weight loss. He had, he had done everything I had told him to do, but he would not go to the gym. And so finally I told him I'm stopping his therapy because he was too sick and I didn't feel he should go on. And he freaked out and was very upset. And I said, well, you know, the only thing left is to go to the gym. And he's like, okay, I'll go to the gym. <laughs> And he came back a month later, and Neil, I could not believe it. He totally freaked me out. This guy looked 20 years younger in one month. Wow. He was going to the gym. His face was no longer that sunken, skinny, cachectic look. It was puffed out again. He was rehydrated. Like his whole body was like just like the whole metabolism of his body turned over. And then he confessed to me that he actually felt great And he was almost afraid to explain to me what he had been doing because he knew that I would tell him I told you so, which of course I did. But it really has made me stress with patients, even during the surveillance period, get into a habit of lifting weights. Don't go to the gym and do the track. Don't go, you know, do the aerobics. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in weightlifting and a full circuit of Nautilus machines where you're going to target every muscle group. And he's just been doing fantastic since then. And it's been my favorite story because there's nothing like, you know, treating somebody successfully without drugs.
0: That's really wild. I remember you were mentioning this to me in the past. And I've asked like renal cell people, you know, have you ever heard about this with And I've asked, you know, obviously hepatology people, they've never heard about it. And it is kind of... Well, part
1: of, of it you have to remember is the hepatologists and the renal people don't treat for as long right, as we do. Most right. of those patients progress at six months. So they don't lose as much weight. But I
0: mean, if you think about this man's story... And with the weight-bearing thing, you know, I'm just really am curious what the mechanism is.
1: Well, I just keep on going back. I think it has to be when you have decreased vascular flow to the muscles. If you're not stimulating them, they atrophy. I mean, that's blood flow is what, you know, you exercise, you increase blood flow, and that makes you make muscle mass. Hmm. So if you're not exercising, you don't have blood flow, I think you just atrophy twice as fast as you would if you were, you know, an average person.
0: Interesting.